Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be back. Yeah. One o'clock in the morning on Friday, I got a phone call from American Airlines telling me that my well-planned schedule had gone awry due to crummy weather in Chicago, and my ten o'clock flight out of Chicago, out of Cincinnati, uh, Saturday morning was going to be canceled because the plane never made it in the night before, so I wasn't going to leave Cincinnati till five yesterday afternoon, which put me back here at eleven something last night. I just commented somebody how glad I was that I had arranged such a nice schedule for the Saturday before the change of daylight savings time. And for once I wasn't getting in at midnight and then losing that hour of sleep. Such is life at the vortex of the angelic conflict. But it was a great conference. There were oh, between 150-200 people there every night and it's always surprising to me and gratifying too to see how uh, what a response there is from a number of people on the ministry. I had several of the men that were there that also come to the WHW conference in in uh, LA every October uh, make just kind of side comments here and there which clearly indicated that they've been consistently listening to the audio over the internet and the conference also went very well and they invited me back for a third time or a fourth time next year so that's going well and there were some a uh, couple of young at least to me they're young army captains teaching in the armored advanced armor school down at Fort Knox who drove up one of them wants to go to seminary and so they've been on tapes here from here for some time and so that was good to meet them after emailing quite a bit. So just to let you know that the doctrine that is taught here and the impact of Preston City Bible Church is really going out across, not only across this country, but we also know from the Internet it's going out around the world. So it's something that we can be very thankful for that the Lord is using us in this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we get started this morning, we ought to have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can never lose your salvation. You have a an eternally secure salvation. We still have a sin nature. We still sin, and there are consequences to that sin spiritually, the first of which is that we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And so we need to, and we break fellowship with God, so we need to recover fellowship, and that is simply done through 
privately admitting or acknowledging our sin to Him. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to worship you through the teaching of your word this morning, to fellowship around the, your word that is absolute truth. It is in the light of your word that we see light. It is in the light of your word that we understand and can properly interpret and evaluate the circumstances of our life. So, Father, we dedicate this time that we might Learn your word, and by it, grow spiritually. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray for the uh, leaders in our nation, for our president, for the uh, civil leaders, that you would give them wisdom, for the military leaders as they prosecute this war against Iraq, and as they continue to uh, carry out the war against terrorism, that you would keep this nation safe, that you would watch over these men, especially the men from this congregation that are overseas, that you would... Uh, be with them. Father, we also pray with, pray about the families of others who have been, uh, put on active service while their loved ones are away and while they are serving. We pray that you would continue to watch over those families. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we could understand the things that we evaluate here, the things that we learn. Father, we pray that they would indeed be a challenge to us and serve their purpose. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And remember the focus here in 1 Corinthians 10 is an illustration of the principle that has, that Paul started to develop back in the 8th chapter. And that principle has to do with handling doubtful things or making decisions in the gray areas, the areas where scripture does not specifically uh, mandate behavior or prohibit behavior. And the ultimate governing principle is going to be the application of the law of love, especially as directed toward the weaker brother. And the, that is developed in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The problem there, because the review of the, of the, that part of the context is germane to where we're going to go in the next section of 1 Corinthians 10, is idolatry and eating meat that had been sacrificed in the temple to the gods. Now, as Paul states there, the gods really are nothing. As we will see by the end of chapter 10, they are, in fact, representations of demonic powers. But Paul says just because you eat from the, from the meat that has been sacrificed in the idol doesn't mean you're going to pick up a demon, doesn't mean you're going to uh, necessarily fall back into idolatry. But for those who have a weak conscience, for those who are not uh, have not taken in the word very much, have not grown spiritually, it does provide a temptation because the uh, the worship of the idols, the usually associated with fertility worship in the ancient world, was also uh, also involved immorality uh, related to temple prostitution. 
So there were those who would go to the temple, and they couldn't just stop at just getting meat or just eating at the restaurant there. They would go on and take it a step further and become involved in the idolatrous practices and the immorality that was associated with the uh, temple worship. So Paul challenges the Corinthians that they need to be uh, aware of the fact that there are weaker believers who may not be, who may see their example, even though they have a legitimate right to eat meat, have a legitimate right to go into the restaurant in the temple. They may not. Uh, there may be these weaker brothers who take that to a an illegitimate conclusion. Paul then gave his own life as an example that, and putting himself in the place of a stronger believer the Corinthians in the place of the weaker believer, he said, I couldn't even deal with your congregation on the basis of the necessity or the importance of the financial support of of a pastor or of the one who came to feed the sheep because you couldn't handle it. So Paul not only didn't take a salary while he was at Corinth, he did not even mention that fact. He just set up his own business as a tent manufacturer and supported himself through a separate vocation. Now he gives two illustrations of this principle of being willing to lay aside legitimate rights and legitimate activities for a higher goal at the end of the chapter. The first he takes from the secular games that took place at the time, the Isthmian games, that even an athlete recognizes that he has to set aside legitimate pursuits, legitimate appetites, uh, eating certain things, living a certain way in order to make sure that he gets in shape and is ready for the the athletic competition. So he has a positive example there that the athlete is willing to be temperate or moderate in everything, in fact, to give up legitimate rights in order to obtain a perishable, perishable crown, how much more the believer who is going to, who is pursuing an imperishable crown and has and what's at stake is eternal realities. In chapter 10, he uses the negative example from Israel, and we've spent some time going back to pick up the background simply because there are so many people who are not as cognizant of the events in the Old Testament. We don't read our Bibles like we used to. This is something that every believer should be doing on a regular basis, is spending time reading through their Bible. I was reminded this last week as we were discussing different issues related to this of the fact that I had some some uh, some men in my first congregation who just had a difficult time reading, and we had uh, at that time I don't know if it's even in print now, but there was a there was an illustrated Bible for children that was published by David C. Cook. It was sort of the Bible in cartoons, but it was uh, something that if if people can't read very well. That's a starting point because it gets them into the Scripture to some degree and at least they can read through the events and become familiar with who the people are, understand the perspective, understand the who comes first, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, whether it's Noah or Moses on the ark, and you know who gets swallowed by the great fish. And they begin to at least become familiar with the major characters and the flow of biblical history. And that's important even for your children to get them started on something where they read, where they're reading the scriptures so they become biblically literate. This country has become biblically illiterate and most Christians are biblically illiterate. They just don't take time to read their Bible and they should be reading their Bible through at least 
once a year, minimum. Just taking that time to go through the Scriptures, take a pen in hand, underline promises, memorize those promises. God, the Holy Spirit, consistently will use His Word to remind you of principles. Now, there will be many things that you don't understand, things that, that, that raise questions, and you just learn to uh, go past that, and eventually you'll, you'll figure out what those are. You may have a good study Bible. I usually recommend a Nelson study Bible in the New King James Version. But you need to have a, a good Bible and be reading it through so that you can understand these things. This is Paul's exact point in verse 6, where we take up this morning. After going through the first five verses where he focuses on the events of the Exodus generation and the fact that they had certain positional realities, they all passed through the sea. They, um, excuse me. First of all, they were all under the cloud. That is, they were the cloud representing the guidance and protection of God. They all passed through the sea at the at the event where God parted the waters of the Reed Sea. In terms of God, God's protection for the nation, they were all baptized. That is, identified into Moses. It was Moses who had faith at the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea, actually, the Yam Suf in Hebrew. They were identified into Moses in relationship to his faith. He was the one who was really trusting God to deliver them. They were panicking, and they were convinced they would be destroyed by the Egyptian army. So they passed through the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Those two events represent God's grace provision for the believer after salvation. God provides everything we need for the spiritual life, everything we need for any situation in life. It is the Word of God that provides the framework for being able to properly understand the events in our life, especially when it comes to difficulties, adversity, and trials. So often people wonder why is it that God could let something so horrible happen in their life or in someone's life that they love, and God allows us to stay in this cosmic system, and God oversees the events in our life and circumstances in our life, and testing is a means by which we get the opportunity to apply what we learn in church. This is where we apply the doctrine that we have learned. And you have two options when you hit a test. You can either positively apply the word and move forward in your spiritual life, or you end up like the like the Jews in the wilderness, and you reject God's grace provision, and you end up going through serious divine discipline and forfeiting a tremendous number of divine blessings that have already been promised and provided, but because of a failure to grow, they are never distributed. And this is the situation that happened to the Exodus generation. Verse 5, with most of them, as they went through the wilderness, as they went through the desert because of their disobedience to God, their failure to trust Him, their failure to trust Him to go into into the land of promise, the land of Canaan, when they sent the twelve spies in, the only two that were willing to trust God were Caleb and and uh, Joshua, and God said that they would be the only two who would enter into the land. The rest of the adults of that generation would perish in the wilderness over the next 40 years. And this is the point of the fifth verse. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So the, he talks about the fact that the wilderness, the desert, is littered with the dead 
bodies, the corpses of all the disobedient Israelites over that 40-year period. And then we come to the point of all of this in verse 6. Now, these things, that is, these things that happened in the to the Exodus generation, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now, let's take a look at a few important concepts that are mentioned in this verse. First of all, we have this concept of examples. These things happened as examples. This is the Greek word tupas. The Greek word tupas, which introduces a very important doctrine. And sometimes a doctrine that is much abused. It's the... um, Upsilon here is often transcribed as a Y, so we'll do it that way this morning, T-Y-P-O-S. This is where we get our English word type, and it means an example or a foreshadowing of some future event. Now this brings in the, the whole subject of what is called typology. Typology. And typology is that study of the scriptures, the areas of the scriptures, where certain historical events are analogous to things that will take place in the future, realities that will take place at a future time. And these historical events that occurred in the Old Testament simply foreshadow future events, or they teach in some sort a visual or picture format some doctrinal reality that is abstract and difficult to understand. For example, you have in the Old Testament the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is a type of the work of Christ on the cross, specifically propitiation. You look at the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was a type of the person of Jesus Christ. It was a wooden box made of acacia wood that was then covered with gold. And this is a picture of the combination of the deity of Christ to the humanity of Christ. Jesus Christ in his deity was eternal. There never was a time when the second person of the Trinity did not exist. And at one point in human history... God became man. This will be a focus of our study in the second hour. God became man. This is the meaning of the name Emmanuel, God with us. God became man, and it is this crucial doctrine that is foundational for really all of human history, even before the incarnation itself. You see that everything in the Old Testament points to the Incarnation, and everything since the Incarnation flows from it. It is not a simple doctrine. There are tremendous implications to the doctrine of Incarnation, and there are as well a number of counterfeits, which we'll examine as we come to our next passage in 2 John during the second hour. But the, the Ark of the Covenant was a type 
of Christ, of his humanity and deity and a type of the hypostatic union. The lamb that was offered as a sacrifice was a type of Christ in that it was a lamb without spot or blemish and that pictured the sinlessness or impeccability of Jesus Christ so that he was the lamb of God who took, takes away the sins of the world. So these things in the Old Testament are called types. Now, you have to be very careful how you handle types. You can't just go into the Scriptures independently of the Scriptures and see something that has a parallel to an event in the, in, in the person or the work of Christ and then just arbitrarily say, oh, this must be a type of Christ. I remember years ago, before I ever went to seminary, and was just beginning to get very serious about studying the Word, and somebody recommended to me a commentary on Genesis by Arthur Pink. And Arthur Pink wrote, wrote a series of commentaries called Gleanings. Gleanings in Genesis, Gleanings in Exodus, Gleanings in Numbers, and many people have read those over the years. But I started, I read almost that whole commentary on Genesis, and Pink found a, a type in almost Everything that you read in the Old Testament, everything that happened in the Old Testament from, from Noah's Ark to, to uh, Abraham going down to Egypt, everything was uh, foreshadowed or pictured to some event in the life of Christ. But you can't do that. That is illegitimate hermeneutics. You can't just arbitrarily go into the Scripture and say, oh, this reminds me of that. I sort of call that sort of the Rorschach view of of hermeneutics, you know, the Rorschach test is the ink blot test. You know, here's an ink blot. Tell me what you think that reminds you of. So some people do that. They get in the scriptures and they read a verse or two, and it sort of reminds them of this principle or that situation, and then they try to make those connections. You can't do that. The Bible tells us. The Bible gives us the key to interpreting itself. And so you can't come in and just arbitrarily pick events and say, and even though it may fit, that that's not legitimate. You have to base your, your interpretation of these types on the Scriptures, and the Scriptures tell us how these are used and where they work. So you, your starting point then is the Bible and not your own independent ideas or autonomous reasoning. This is the biggest danger in the church today, and especially and has been for, for generations and centuries, is that people try to work out some problem in the Scripture, and they don't think clearly enough about how they think, and they inadvertently start not with the Scriptures, but with some sort of independent idea. And it always ends up creating some level of problem and creating some distortion in theology. So typology then deals with events in the Old Testament that God specifically identifies as events that foreshadow future doctrinal realities, future historical realities, and usually in relationship to the person or the work of Jesus Christ or something in the spiritual life of the church age believer. Even though the church is not known in the Old Testament, these things portray for us certain doctrinal realities. The Old Testament believers may not have understood all of the significance of those things either. Just because they went through the practice of sacrificing a lamb, they were not clear 
as clear as we are, let's say, on understanding that the Messiah would be sacrificed. If they were, there would have been a, a better understanding of that by the time of the Incarnation. Some understood that, but it was not as clear as it is after the Incarnation. So we're told in 1 Corinthians 10.6, these events happened as examples for us. Us is a reference to church age believers. Therefore, we are to go back and look at the events. Specifically, these are the events of, these are the events of the Exodus generation. So the, these equals Exodus generation events. That's the literal interpretation. However, it has a broader application in terms of Old Testament events. The Old Testament events mirror or reflect certain realities for the future church age believer that we can learn from and that we are to learn from. But that's application. Specifically, Paul is talking about the Exodus generation events. These things happen as examples for us for the purpose that, and here we have an ace clause that in ace plus an aorist infinitive to express the purpose of these examples so that we would not crave evil things. And here we have the phrase or the verb uh, from epithemia meaning to lust after, to crave for, to desire evil things. There was a distortion of priorities by the church, by the uh, Exodus believers. In Psalm 106, 14 we read, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. Now this is an important thing, principle to understand here. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. This is the Old Testament commentary and interpretation of what happened to the Exodus generation. They were always the paradigm or example of the rebellious believer and of what not to do. While they were in the desert, they lusted exceedingly. Their focus was always on what they lost in Egypt and not on all the grace provisions that God gave them in the desert. And this was a test of God. They were testing God again and again to see if God would take care of them and God would provide for them, and they did not trust God in the wilderness. That generation of Jews rejected the faith rest drill as the principle for their life. You see, in the Old Testament, it is the faith rest drill that is the basis for living the Christian life. God says to do something, and then you trust him, you believe his promise, and you live in light of that promise. And God said that he would give them the land of Canaan, that that land was promised to their forefathers through the Abrahamic covenant that was then confirmed or to Isaac and then to Jacob, but they refused to believe that. They went in, when the spies went into the land, ten of them came back and said, we can't do it. There's too many people, they have fortified cities, and there are giants in the land, and we're not capable of doing it. Well, God said, I didn't send you in there to see if you could do it. I sent you to go in there to see how you're going to do it. It was a reconnaissance mission, and God had already promised that he would give them the land. See, they failed to accurately exegete the text. 
They didn't understand what, what the mission was. The mission was not to see if they could do it. This is the problem, is most people don't pay close enough attention to divine directives, and then they everything falls apart, and they say, well, doctrine doesn't work, or Christianity doesn't work, and uh, they never really tried it because they weren't truly trusting what the Scriptures teach. We, were, we are not to crave or to desire or to lust after the evil things as they lusted. Now, what were the evil things that they lusted for? The evil things that they lusted for were everything promised by the human viewpoint thinking of their that Egyptian culture out of which they came. And this is made clear in the next verse in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. This is the specific area of lust or craving that Paul is honing in on. There are many different types of lust that flow from the sin nature. You have sex lust, you have materialism lust, money lust, you have approbation lust, the desire for approval, the desire to be loved and liked and to get attention. You have power lust. You have lust for pleasure. You, there are many different kinds of lusts. It is the lust for a false religious system and a false god that is the issue here. And that is ultimately the foundation of all other lust patterns. It all comes down, always comes down to what is being worshipped. In approbation lust, what is being worshipped is your own desire to get attention. In power lust, it, once again, it is the self that is being worshipped. In uh, money lust, it is our, 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 it's usually the things and materialism that is being worshipped, the things that money can buy. So there are very di- various different kinds or objects of lust, and they all ultimately replace God in their in their system. It is a way of worshiping something other than God, putting something else in the place of God. Now, this event that is referenced in 1 Corinthians 10.7 goes back to what happens at Mount Sinai when Moses is up on the mountain being given the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words from God. While he is up there, he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and the Jews down below begin to get restless. They begin to get bored. This is one of the most uh, uh, devastating enemies to the spiritual life. We get tired of waiting on God. We become impatient. This is why... Isaiah says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. At the base of Mount Sinai, the Jews became tired of waiting on God and became tempted because they did not have the pleasures, did not have the comforts, did not have the kind of food that had been with them in the past. So, Paul warns us not to fall into the same trap that they fell into. He says, do not be, be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. Now this phrase, as it is written, is the perfect, uh, perfect passive indicative of grapho, and it is a formula for quoting Old Testament scripture. 
There are two quotes in the New Testament from secular Greek, and this phrase is not used when it quotes from secular sources. It is used only when the Old Testament is quoted, when the Word of God is being quoted, and the perfect tense of the verb indicates completed action, and the emphasis is on the abiding or continuing results of the verb that we now have, what God revealed in the past, and it has an ongoing impact. And the emphasis is on the divine origin and the infallibility of the Scriptures. So here in 1 Corinthians 10.7, we get just a snapshot of how the people fell into idolatry in the Old Testament. What happened was they, Moses is up on the mountain, and they become bored, and they decide that God has destroyed Moses because he's been gone so long, they haven't heard a word from him. So they begin to conspire among themselves that we need to placate God. So in order to do that, they fall right back into their preconceived notions of God, of, of deity, which they picked up from the Egyptians. So they go to Aaron, and they pressure Aaron into building a golden calf for them. The calf represented the, or the calf was a representation of the Egyptian god Aphis. And so they, they take all of the, this gold that they had taken from the Egyptians, they give it to Aaron, and Aaron melts it down and makes a golden calf, and the people begin to worship the golden calf. Now, in the process of worship in the ancient world, in, in idolatry was always associated, or almost always associated, with the fertility cult. So they would end up having an orgy, and then a sex orgy on top of that, in order to somehow placate the God. And all of this, of course, is blasphemy and an abomination to God. So we read about this in Exodus 32, uh, 4 and 6. And he, that is Aaron, received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God. This is what the Jews are saying. They point to the golden calf and they say, this is God, O Israel. And that's exactly what idolatry is, is when we are identifying something in our lives other than God, and we worship that. Whether it's worshiping the Virgin Mary, or worshiping saints, or worshiping icons, or worshiping angels, or spirits, it's all idolatry. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter if you try to rationalize it and say, well, this is just a picture of Jesus or a picture of the saints, and I'm using it as sort of a a training aid or concentration point to help me worship God. I know that's not God. It is still a practice that is forbidden in the Scriptures. The first commandment that God gave Moses was said that you shall have no other gods before me. There is one and only one God, and we are not. To, we are forbidden to make images of that God. And when we do, you slip into idolatry, and that always opens the door to demonism. We'll study that at the end of this chapter. When we get down to 1 Corinthians 10, 20 to 21, Paul warns these these Corinthians that by by being uh, by slipping back into idolatry, they are slipping into demonism. He says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. It's one or the other. And what this is an example of is believers who fail to learn about God and his nature so that after they're saved, they fall back on their pagan preconceived notions of 
who God is and how God operates. You see this today, prime example. We get, we go off to uh, a war, a very clearly a war that follows all of the parameters and all of the guidelines for just war as outlined in the scriptures. And yet you have people say, well, how can you justify this from the Bible? God wouldn't like this because God says that you should not kill. Well, see, what they've got is some some goofy idea that some liberal theologian told them that doesn't know anything about the original languages of Scripture. The Bible does not say you shall not kill. The Bible says thou shalt not commit murder. It is a clear word. There's about eight different words in Hebrew for taking life. And the word that is used in Exodus 19, that is awfully translated, thou shalt not kill, is the Greek, I mean the Hebrew word ratzach, which means to murder. It is like, it's what we would call homicide. Thou shalt not commit homicide. It has nothing to do with taking life in self-defense. It has nothing to do with taking life in combat or any other situation where you are completely justified in taking human life. What happens every time people have some sort of idea of what God is or God's fairness, and then they bring that to the text, you have to start with the Scriptures. You can't start with these independent ideas of what you think God is. I'm amazed at how many people think that on the strength of their own opinion and their own experience, they can automatically identify who God is and what he is like without ever listening to his revelation of himself in Scripture. That's nothing more than arrogance, and it is a form of mental idolatry. They've just conjured up their own God in their mind, and it is a mental form of idolatry. So Paul says that they are not to follow this same example. And so this is what Israel does. They construct their own idea of God, whether it is an external physical image that is made of gold or silver or wood or, or, or some sort, any other natural object or stone, or whether it is a mental construct. When you put anything ahead of God, when you put anything ahead of the Word of God in terms of priority in life, that is idolatry. Not all idols are physical. There are many times in life when we make gods of success, we make gods of happiness, we make gods of of, uh, social life, we make gods of self-image, and we put those things ahead of the study of the Word of God, and we make decisions based on this false priority system. And rather than being in Bible class, rather than being involved with with the study of God's Word, rather than listening to a tape, rather than making sure that our children understand that the priority is the study of God's Word over anything else in life, no matter how good it is, that that when we do that, that becomes idolatry, and it subtly destroys our spiritual life. Now, when... Israel did this. They they identified the golden calf as God. This is your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. When we attribute to anything other than God, that which God alone can do, that is idolatry. So what happened is they identified the golden calf as Yahweh. They called it Yahweh. They called it Yahweh. 
That's just like people today, they construct their own view of who Jesus is, and then they call him Jesus, and they say, we worship Jesus. No, they're not worshiping Jesus because it's not the Jesus of the Bible. So it it doesn't matter what name or what tag you put on something, whether you call it God, Jesus, or anything else, that doesn't make it so. You have to let the Bible define who God is and who Jesus is. The result was that they conducted their worship just like they did in all pagan systems. See, you can't, this is another point. Worship can't be this autonomous idea of worship either. This also happens. People come to church and they have their own ideas of worship. And then when they leave church, they, they say, oh, we, we really worship God today. Because somehow they either went through some ritual that they have been trained to identify with, with worship. Or they sang certain kinds of songs which they identified with worship. And so they've developed this, this autonomous definition of worship. And then if they go to church and they do that, then it's worship. And if they don't do that, it wasn't worship. <coughs> worship in the scripture has the idea of putting a priority on God and attributing to God that which God has done. In order to do that, we have to know who God is and what He has done, and we can only do that through the study of the Scriptures. Singing hymns and songs is a response to what God has done, and it is very important that the hymns and the music that we sing are hymns that have words, that have sound theology, and music that is uh, that, that is good music. And unfortunately, so so much of what is done as contemporary Christian music has pathetic music. I mean, it's just two or three chords that that are repeated over and over again. It's very simple uh, music. It doesn't reflect that anybody ever spent any time trying to apply the principle of doing everything to the glory of God. And the words frequently reflect a very poor theology. That's why... I make it a point to go through and evaluate all of the songs that we sing, and I pick hymns, and we have a list of about 30 different songs that we sing, and I'm very particular about the songs that we sing because, unfortunately, most people will will, think, will learn their theology more from the songs they sing than uh, from the doctrine they hear. Now that's not true here because we don't spend 30, we don't waste our time singing 30 or 40 hymns or choruses every Sunday. Now if you go to some churches where they do that all the time and then they only have a 20 minute sermonette, that's where people are going to get all of their understanding of God is from the shallow superficial choruses that they sing. And what most people don't realize is the entire contemporary Christian music scene with almost without exception, and even if the individual artists aren't charismatic, the whole philosophy underlying the contemporary Christian music scene came out of what was called the Jesus Movement of the late 60s and early 70s, and it is uh, it, it, the whole movement is characterized and built on a charismatic Pentecostal assumptions about life and about God and about worship. And what many people in Bible churches don't realize is when you start singing all these little Christian choruses, what you are doing is in in very subtle, imperceptible ways, you begin to open yourself up 
to that theology. And this is exactly what happened in the 70s and 80s. And in my analysis, and and I've spent thousands of hours studying the charismatic Pentecostal movement and the issues related to it, what happened in the 70s and 80s is that people in non-charismatic Pentecostal churches became open to charismatic Pentecostal theology through three different avenues, none of which involved speaking in tongues. That was only a, that had become a secondary issue. Speaking in tongues and healing are really secondary issues. The primary way people opened themselves up to the charismatic movement and made a subtle transition was through music and through buying into contemporary worship forms. Once you do that, you have, you have taken a big step in the wrong direction. The second way they did it was through the doctrines related to spiritual warfare and demonism. And that, that came across through some of the uh, fictional works by Frank Peretti and then many other books that were written talking about demons on the mission field. And then the third way, the third way people became open to this was through the church growth movement. The church growth movement, and most people don't realize it, but the the uh, father of the modern church growth movement was a man by the name of Peter Wagner, who was the head of uh, the missions department, I believe, at Fuller Seminary. And it was Peter Wagner, along with a man named John Wimber, who were the instigators of what became known as the third wave movement in the Pentecostal movement in the 20th century, or the Signs and Wonders movement, or the Vineyard movement. It goes by a couple of other names. But all of these things were interconnected. And you can't just say, oh, aren't these nice songs? Because what happens in Pentecostalism is an experiential theology. And in Pentecostal charismatic view, the idea of worship is defined as having a certain sort of mindset, a certain sort of attitude. Uh, They define it as sort of a piety. Now, if you're going to worship according to that view, what you have to do is create an environment in church where people, where you produce in people that attitude or that mindset. And the way to do it is through certain kinds of music. And so the music is used to change the way people, people's attitudes are so that when they leave, they're, they're uplifted, they feel good, they feel like they were sort of in this, uh, uh, rosy, glowy kind of state, this uh, otherworldly, almost ethereal kind of state where God could speak to them, and that is defined as worship. But that is not how the Bible defines worship. The biblical words for worship, both in Hebrew and in Greek, are related to attributing value and worth to the object. They are, they, they are words that mean to bow the knee, to submit to the authority of Someone, And so when we worship God, we're submitting to his authority. To submit to his authority means we are learning his commands so that we can obey his commands. This is why the scripture says again and again, if you love me, you will keep my word. So the highest form of worship, as we believe here at Preston City Bible Church, is to know the word of God so that we can apply the word of God and obey the word of God. That is the highest form of worship. The highest form of worship is not sitting around holding hands and singing 25 choruses of, Oh, how I love you, Jesus. So we don't, 
we completely reject that. Now, I know that that gets a little boring sometimes for people when we sing a lot of the same hymns, but we really don't sing them that frequently. I set things up to give you a little philosophy of my ministry. The first song we sing every week is sort of like a call to worship, to focus our attention on God. And I have picked about eight hymns that do that, and we rotate them uh, specifically through the month. So we don't sing each song but once every every uh, four weeks. We have eight hymns, so that works out one. We sing one. We sing two every Sunday. And then we have about 25 other hymns that we sing, and I just go down the list, and we just sing through the list, and then we start over again. So they're spread out throughout the um, throughout the throughout the year, and we just cycle through them four or five times through the year. And that way, we really aren't singing the same songs over and over again. We do sing the opening songs a little more frequently, but there is a purpose and a reason to that, is because I pick hymns that have sound doctrine to them and sound theology. If you compare the words of most of the hymns that we sing, they are hymns that describe the works of God in redemption and the spiritual life. If you compare that to to most of the contemporary chorus hymns, they're talking about I, my love for Jesus, and the focus is always on on the worshiper and his mental attitude and his attributing something to God. Not that in and of itself that that is wrong, but it produces a very self-centered orientation in the music, and that is a problem. Now, all of this relates to the concept of idolatry and trying to define worship and define uh, God apart from Scripture. Now, you're going to find a lot of people. Don't get me wrong here. You will find people who will justify and try to justify contemporary worship through various Scripture references. But what's happened is they have taken a preconceived notion of worship, a preconceived definition of worship, and then they have come to the Scripture and they have ram-crammed and jammed these verses to fit their preconceived notion of Scripture. Methodologically, they did not start with the text and then work out from the Scripture. They didn't let God define the subject. So you always have to watch them, and sometimes it gets a little slippery and a little difficult, especially if you're, you haven't thought about some of these things before. So what happens in the, to the Israelites is they have their own view of worship, which they, which they brought with them from Egypt. And so the next morning they got up early, they offered burnt offerings to the golden calf, and they brought peace offerings. And then it, the text says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Actually, this is a euphemism for the fact that they sat down and had an orgy. And then when they rose up to play, that has a strong, uh, sexual, connotation to it. They rose up to play, and the Hebrew word here that is translated play is the verb tzahach, tzahach, and it is the uh, verb root form from which we get the name Yitzhak, or Isaac, and its root meaning is laughter, and it also has a negative connotation of making fun of somebody or or, uh, uh, deriding somebody, running them down, and it becomes an an euphemism for sexually suggestive dance as a foreplay for an orgy. In fact, this word is translated caressing in Genesis chapter 26, verse 8. So these Jews 
began to have a an orgy there at the mount at the foot of Mount Sinai, while Moses is up being given the uh, Ten Commandments, which began with a prohibition against having any other gods, and they're down there at the foot of the mountain creating their own gods. So we have uh, a continued problem here, and then at the result of that, God disciplines the Jews, and some 3,000 Israelites were killed in divine discipline, according to Exodus 32:28, because of their idolatry. Then we come to verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Now this refers to a different event, a different, an event that is described in Numbers chapter 25. What is important here, and what I find fascinating, is Paul's methodology of how he's making his point, and then he just weaves together passages and events from from uh, our passages related to four different events in the history of Israel. Now, this relates to Israel's immorality sometime later, as they are after they after the Kadesh Barnea incident, and they are out in the wilderness. And this takes place after um, uh, they're trying they're going up through Moab, and and uh, Balaam announces his curse and plan for. For Israel to distract them through sexual immorality. Now, in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 25, we read, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. See, this was, this was um, uh, uh, Balaam's plan that he came up with, is that since Israel couldn't be defeated militarily because they had a God behind them, the way to defeat them, for, for the Moabites to defeat them was to uh, entice them sexually with their women, and then when they married, then they would they they would marry Moabite women, and then they would be influenced to worship the Moabite religion, and this would destroy their allegiance to God, and this was the best way to destroy Israel. And of course, that's exactly what happened, and as a result of this, uh, a pl- God began to discipline them through a plague. And uh, Israel, was, the Lord instructed Moses in verse 4, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So there were a group that were leading them, a group of Jews that were leading them in this direction, and God said that the way to punish them, make an example of them, was through a public hanging. And so, see, this is another thing due to, due to the wonderful influence of liberalism and the ideas that all men are basically good. We've done away with public executions in this country. And see, here's another example of the kind of reasoning I'm talking about. What happens is you get brainwashed by a modern culture into thinking that this type of thing is is primitive. This is archaic. This is this is too brutal. We don't want to expose people to public executions. Well, see what you've just done is you you by by making that autonomous judgment that a public execution is brutal. Well, you then what happens? You come to the scriptures and you see something like this, and what's your conclusion? Oh, the God of the Bible is brutal. See, you you've taken human viewpoint presuppositions 
made them absolutes, and then you come in and you judge God on that basis, rather than saying, look at what God does to evil and to sin. This is how we should treat evil and sin. We need to revamp the way we think about reality and the way we deal with criminals and the way we handle our our penal system. So we have everything backwards as usual. As a result of this, God sends a plague among the the Israelites, and then we have an interesting event that 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 brings about the end of this discipline. In verse seven, now when Phinehas, or verse verse six, indeed one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren. He's just blatant about his immorality. He presents to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation of the children of Israel who are weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, because he saw what this man was doing, his flagrant immorality, Phinehas rose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the, the man of Israel into his tent, and he thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman threw her body, so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. It was by a leader who had a clear understanding of the spiritual issues involved and a clear understanding of divine absolutes who was willing to take strong action, action that many people would not take. But when he took that action to to kill and execute this man and woman, then God stopped the plague, and this for this he was honored by God, beginning in verse 11. And uh, there's a difference in verse 9 of chapter 25 in Numbers. It says that 24,000 died. In verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says 23,000 died. Actually, verse 8 of chapter 10 says in one day 23,000 fell. The total number that died were 24,000, but 23,000 died the sin unto death in one day. So as they went through the wilderness, God brought out these different disciplines so that, that thousands of people died in different events. And then we come to verse 9 where Paul says, Nor let us test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. This is another situation that took place in uh, Numbers 17 where the people are disobedient to God and God brings these serpents that had a, uh, they were a type of uh, a venomous or a type of viper that had a burning poison. And the only way they could um, recover was that God told Moses to create an image of this serpent, a bronze image, and raise it up. And if the people looked at that image then that was a sign of their faith and their trust in God, and they would be delivered. Now, this actually takes place, I think I said number 17, this takes place in Numbers 21. And it's referenced in John 3, 14, and 15 as a type of Christ. Just as the serpent was raised up and the people looked at the serpent and were saved, so Christ would be raised up and those who looked to him would be saved. And so verse 9 of chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 says, Don't test the Lord like the uh, Jews did in the wilderness because they were constantly uh, griping and complaining about God's grace provision of food and nourishment for them. We see this in Psalm 78, 18, and 19. And they tested God in their heart 
by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? So they failed to trust God. They were constantly saying, can God provide for us? Can God provide for us? And they went through life continuing to complain and gripe about everything that God provided for them. It wasn't what they thought they ought to have, and they failed to trust God. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. God's under divine discipline sent a disciplining angel who once again wiped out thousands of the Jews in divine discipline. Now, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction. Actually, the verb there is nutheteo, our admonition. It is a strong warning by example. They were written to us upon whom the end of the age has come. Don't ever think that the Old Testament isn't relevant for the church age believer. That's the point here. You get too many Christians who think, oh, well, we're not living in the Old Testament. We're living in the New Testament. Well, that's true, but that doesn't mean the Old Testament is irrelevant. You can't understand the Old, the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. That's why I did a series several years ago on understanding or orienting to the Old Testament. Everyone ought to go through that series because it gives you a framework for understanding the Old Testament events and why they were there. Most Christians are abysmally ignorant of the Old Testament. They happened as an example to us, and they were written for our admonition so we wouldn't make the same mistakes. Therefore, verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the application to the Corinthian believers. They thought they had it made. They thought they knew all doctrine. And Paul warns them that the person who thinks he has made it in the spiritual life should uh, be careful, should watch out, because he is on the verge of failing in the spiritual life. Now, in verse 13, Paul draws a conclusion that no testing, that is, the word there for temptation, is the Greek word perosmos. And it has two meanings. Perosmos has two ideas. One is an overt test or evaluation or situation where you have to make a decision or apply something. The other meaning has the idea of that subjective attraction to lust. That's not the idea here. This is the objective meaning. No test has taken you, has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Actually, the the word there in the in the Greek is the verb anthropinos. It's it, which means it's it's typical of man. It's a, a typically human situation that there's no testing, no hardship, no difficulty, no adversity that we will run into in life. That is uncommon. Everybody runs into these same kinds of situations. And then he says, God will not, God is faithful, indicating his attribute of immutability. God is always faithful. God loves the believer. And he will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability. But your ability is defined by what is available to you in the Word of God. God is faithful. He controls the circumstances. Jesus Christ controls history, and he, any test that we go through it indicates that God realizes that we have the information and the capacity to handle the situation. 
So God is faithful who will not allow us to be tested beyond that ability defined by the filling of the Holy Spirit plus the doctrine that we have in the Word of God. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape. That's not a way to avoid the test, but it's a way to stay in the test, to stay through the test, and still have that perfect peace and calm and happiness that God provides for us because we understand that our mentality, our stability, our happiness is not dependent on circumstances. But with the testing, we'll provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it, so that you will be able to stay under the pressure and that you will be able to apply doctrine and grow to spiritual maturity and advance and glorify God in the midst of the testing. So all of this is going to then be applied to the test of whether or not the Corinthians are willing to apply the principle or the law of love when it comes to doubtful things. We'll cover more on this and the warning and how this was causing them to slip into idolatry uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at your word this morning, to be challenged by these things, to recognize that, that you are the God who controls history and that you knew from eternity past that, that man would fall into sin and you provided a perfect salvation in Jesus Christ, a salvation that is not dependent upon anything we do, a salvation is not dependent upon our morality or our acts, but a salvation that is exclusively dependent upon Jesus Christ. And that salvation is based simply in faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not anything that we do. It's not a result of our improving ourselves. It's not a result of ritual. It is a result of faith alone, in Christ alone. If anyone is here this morning that is without a certainty, assurance of their salvation, if you are not sure of your eternal destiny, this is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is put your faith alone in Christ alone. At that instant, God the Father knows what you are trusting in for salvation, and you are immediately and instantly regenerated, and you receive eternal life, and you can never lose it. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the examples that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.